If you have a Bible, turn it to 1 Peter chapter 2, the third week that we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're continuing a theme that we started a couple weeks ago, answering the question, what what does it mean to live lives with honor as we just try to navigate the tension of being dual citizens for the believers among us this morning, for those who are worshiping God, and that song comes from a place of genuine belief that you belong to God. Uh, I remind you once again that you are a sojourner. You live on earth, you belong in heaven. And we've been answering the question, in that tension, how do we honor God and also live in a messy and real world? And we're going to dive into some real practical application of that this morning and to get you started about the topic that I've been thinking about and maybe you've been thinking about if you read ahead. I'll just ask an informal poll now. How many of you are satisfied with your current place of employment? And maybe some of you hands straight up. Um, Some of you maybe are here with coworkers or even a boss. You're like, thank you so much. And I'm looking out for the ones who actually work here. I'm like, where where are your hands at? (laughs) So uh, rather than base the mood of the current condition of um, the workplace and our relation to it off our sanctuary, there's there's just a general sense that we live in a a weird time as it comes to workers in the workplace. Here's here's some um, ways for you to maybe see that with me. A recent poll says that 50% of Americans are happy at their current place of employment. So it splits right down the middle. If the poll was accurate to the larger sample size, one out of two of you are probably thinking about doing something else with your life right now. Um, One-third of U.S. workers are engaged at work in a meaningful and consistent and enthusiastic way. So 33% of people polled said, not only do I like my work, I actually try hard. Um, hopefully that we, we beat that number this morning, and uh, the point of the sermon will be to overcome that number by God's grace. Uh, and maybe the most challenging, if you're in this place, uh, but the most beneficial for what the Word, I think, wants to say this morning, over half of Americans report a desire to leave their job to get away from a manager or boss. Um, the workplace is where you learn a lot about the real-life application of how to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, You know, in all of the tension, whether it is the way that we have to interact with the government and the society that puts laws over our heads and governing authorities over our heads and mandates and ordinances to follow, and we looked at all of that last week, or it's the workplace that also puts authority and mandates and demands on your life over your head, sometimes the reaction is to throw up your hands and quit. Sometimes the reaction is, I live for heaven, and so this little country and its laws or this little office and its rules, I'm not going to take it seriously and I'm not going to let it ruin my life. And if you felt that way, you'd you'd actually be more aligned sometimes with how just normal people feel about how they can navigate life. We're so transient that when we get into a collision of relationship in whatever form, whether it is neighbor or uh, spouse or workplace, sometimes you just want to move on. 
I'll share with you a couple more examples of growing trends that I hope that the word will cleanse us from any temptation to join in this morning and how we are becoming less and less inclined to be really, really honorable people as servants in whatever God's called us to do. There's three trends to be cautious of. One, quiet quitting trend. Who's heard of this? Quiet quitting is where you continue to go to your place of work, but rather than make a formal resignation and uh, have a conversation with your boss or manager, uh, you stay and you just disengage in all the activity. So you, you, you punch in and you clock in and you clock out and then the whole time, as much as you can, you're doing whatever you want with your time. Especially dangerous, I think, in the new uh, remote workplace that we live in. Uh, how about ghost quitting? We've heard of ghosting in relationships. The growing trend is that when you get sick of a job, you just stop showing up. There's also ghost interviews. It's like I'm on round two of my interview, but I don't think I'm going to go with it. So rather than afford a common courtesy to tell someone I'm no longer interested, I will just stop responding to all emails and texts and move on with my life. And maybe the, the most dangerous one that I hope none of you are struggling with right now is, of course, rage quitting. Has anyone rage quit ever? You know, you tip over the table and you throw the papers and... You know, you tell everyone off. Um, I'll share with you my favorite example of this that really stirred in my mind as I was reading the Christian response to not do any of this. Uh, a flight attendant, so annoyed with the duties of their job and the high demand of their life, that as one flight was ending, they announced over the, pu the plane's public address system that he had been abused by a passenger who was quitting his job on the spot, <laughs> So you imagine he's like, ladies and gentlemen, I just have a quick announcement to make. <laughs> he then grabbed and guzzled two beers. So you must have, I'm imagining shotgun. You shouldn't know what that means. But. <laughs> and then he exited the plane by deploying the evacuation slide and just sliding right down out. What a temptation when you feel like quitting as a flight attendant. And you know at any point you could just pull the exit and slide down and enjoy an inflatable. That's an example of saying, you know what? I don't care anymore. I no longer have any interest in honorable conduct. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care what you think about my company. I'm moving on with my life. And this is not a new human condition. This is something that the Apostle Peter was writing into because these believers, as was exemplified in this man's life, they're being tormented in a certain way. Christians living in ancient Rome, we will restate, were not the most popular group of people in, in pretty much any category that you could align someone with to sum them up. They, they were not popular in the religious sense. They were not popular in the political sense. They were not popular in the patriotic sense. And they were the favorite whipping class of the general population. And so everything that has flown from, or everything is now flowing from Peter giving them a practical response in how to deal with the tension of being the least of these, but also having a hope in heaven. And it is not to rage quit. It is not to throw uh, up your hands and be no longer interested. This is all coming from the header that we looked at when we first studied the chapter. So read again with me. We have to restate it. To understand everything Peter is saying from here on out, we have to go over and over again to his main point, chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners, you're traveling through, I understand. You're exiles, you don't belong even in the home that you live in. 
Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, that you by your good works, which they observe, would glorify God in the day of visitation. He's saying, as people speak against you, as they tear down your reputation, as they spread rumors against you, and eventually, as even as you go through physical persecution, you're going to live in such a way, God's people will be so set apart in their response to how evil is spoken against them, that somehow, as God visits on his return, they would glorify his name because of you. Now, we restate that because for the following week, starting last week, Peter's going to give a real-world application for what good deeds look like or honorable conduct looks like. He's going to say, last week, here's how you have honorable conduct as a citizen in the province of Rome that you live in. And this week, he's going to say, here's how you have honorable conduct in the place that God has called you to serve, the, the, the labor that you put into the world. And in all of it, you have to hold on to this main idea, which can be so easily lost. Peter is not giving them a playbook for survival. He's not just saying, here's how you avoid being so persecuted that you lose all hope. He's giving them a playbook for redemption. He's saying your lives will actually have an impact if you do this. People will see you as these incredible upstanding citizens, incredible neighbors in, in, your, in your civic life that they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. And we say all of that so we'd understand what he's trying to say about their position as workers. And it will be a passage of scripture that may stir some questions. We're going to look at what it was like to be a worker in ancient times. It may stir some things in you that may not directly apply to your life, but the principle is this. God wants to use however he has made you a servant with authority over you to bring glory to his name. So with that in mind, we'll read the passage of scripture that we're looking at this morning, starting in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is, you, is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, oftentimes you'll go through a passage of scripture and you'll hear it preached, and then you'll get a big payoff as to the main big idea at the very end. What we just read provides us with the main idea that Peter is giving people as servants with masters above them in these two things. He says, this is how you were called, and then he says that Christ left you the example. 
And this is the perspective that is going to point you towards a living hope in every area of God's, of God's call on your life. And this morning, there is a living hope for you as a servant under authority, and there is a living hope for Christ as your example of the ultimate servant of all time. That is the main idea. To really grasp it, now, we look at some of the things that Peter says because he's basically going to give a how and a why. How are you called? How does your life display honorable conduct to God's glory? Well, he says that you are called as servants underneath the authority of masters. Before you get too far into this passage of Scripture, it is worth pointing out that there may be some of, some of you that have the translation that says slave. And this is why this passage of Scripture could be confusing as you read it and you're wondering, wait a minute, if there is slavery happening in and around the Apostle Peter's influence, why would he give them a playbook for how to endure it rather than how to overcome it? And so we'll speak to that for just a second. The first is that the, the reality is, is that slavery was everywhere in ancient Rome. Uh, there's no way to know the exact number, but some estimates uh, would say that there was one out of four people were slaves. And we can say that the context of slavery in the time that Peter was writing was different than what we may think of as chattel slavery. There was all sorts of ways that someone could be indebted into service over, uh, underneath a master, but none of it, very unlikely that it was rooted in race. It could have been rooted in debt. They could have been born into it and then sold into it. They could have been a prisoner of war. And the culture had a many different ways to where slaves had some sort of standing in society. So Peter is speaking into a time that did look different. And the reason that some of your Bibles don't use the word slave is because Peter actually uses a different word than it, the word that is often translated into slavery. Translated into slavery, He's using a word that is most likely thought of as a household servant. Someone that is in the household, underneath the authority of the household, but they live in a role that is very common to the workforce that we would understand today. There was roles as a household servant that were doctors and nurses. There was roles that had them in places of management overseeing other workers. There was roles as nannies and tutors. Some of them were treated like members of the family. Uh, the point being that this is a message to help us understand our place in many different roles wherever there is authority over you. So unless you are independently wealthy and so entrepreneurial that you are at the very top of the economic period in your pyramid in your life, you can relate to having some sort of position where you are being asked to serve and you're also being asked to, here's the word, submit. Wherever God has called people to serve, in a place where there is a structure of authority, whether it's government, whether it's household, whether it's church, or whether it is the workforce, he is always going to put them in a position to show what it looks like to be a submissive person. 
And this is the main point that Peter is getting at. He is not trying to make any kind of grand statement about the future of God's plan to set people free. But I will say this. There is no greater worldview to adopt and live out if you rightfully condemn and oppose slavery. The Christian worldview, as it spreads and grows throughout time, is always the worldview that eradicates the mistreatment and the slave labor of people. And that is seen as a case study through history. And it's also seen as you zoom out and you think about the redemptive story of God as he interacts with his people and his plan for redemption. There are two grand movements of God redeeming people. And they both have at their core a God who desires to set people free from chains. So you think of the, the story of God's people in the Old Testament and they find themselves in a foreign land under the heavy hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And what does God do? He sends a savior to speak on his behalf that says, let my people go. And he redeems them from slavery and he sets them forth the promises that he has for them. And it was a real moment in history and it was also a preview of a worldwide gospel to eradicate slavery that we now fall under the grace of now. Because Jesus comes on the scene as the visible image of this invisible God who works to redeem people and set them free. And he says the real oppressor is not Rome and it is not Egypt anymore. The real oppressor is the oppression of sin. For all have fallen short of the glory of God and have fallen into a relationship with sin that begins as something that is fun and then it turns into something that is slavery. And as we will go on to see in our great example of Christ, he takes on the punishment of sin to set people free to live in righteousness. At the heart of the gospel is redemptive power to set people free. Which means as we go through these verses, and maybe even as you've heard these verses in the past, let me just give one giant disclaimer lest we do it every verse. If you ever hear a passage of scripture that talks about enduring through evil oppression used as a way to turn a blind eye to evil. Or if anyone uses a passage of scripture like this to actually give themselves license for evil, or as the Apostle Peter would say himself, a cloak for evil, they are abusing the heart of the scripture. This passage of scripture is not supposed to be used in the back pocket of some hypocritical pimp who's abusing a sex slave. It is not supposed to give us a, uh, a, a clear conscience when we think about modern day slavery happening in ways that we should pray for and fight against. This is a passage of scripture to give a general principle about how people relate to authority that is placed over them in the places of service. And what Peter will say once again this morning is as a rule, followers of Jesus, as they live with the hope of heaven, waiting to be in their final home with God for eternity, are generally submissive and kind people. And so here's what he says that this looks like. 
He says in verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. We are going to, as we take the word seriously, we are going to look different by God's grace and the empowering of his Holy Spirit than what would be the normal human reaction to life's circumstances. And this is one example of how that works. It is one thing to be an agreeable employee when you got a great boss, isn't it? When you have that dream boss and he or she comes in and wants to do trust falls with the team and then they circle up and they, you know, they spend a couple days just workshopping their feelings and then at the end of it they go on a team building retreat and everyone gets swag bags and if you work at Calvary Boise, I'm like, I'm taking notes right now. This is great. We can do a trust fall after service if you want. But nobody wants to be a kind and agreeable and easy to lead employee when they're working for that boss that is harsh and cruel and rude. And the reality is, in Peter's day and in our day, human nature prevails. People that are in positions of authority do not automatically have a desire to lead well and lead with kindness and lead with humility. That is actually all a Christian ideal. To, to do this and to do it well, you have to be willing to do it even when it is not intuitive. And again, we, we find ourselves paralleling the design of how we submit to government and how we submit to masters. Do you remember last week when Peter said that we are people to, who submit to the king and the governors that he sends to enforce the law and every ordinance of man? Please listen to the sermon so I don't have to discuss disclaim or make disclaimers about how there are some times where we have to show some sort of subversion to that, but it was a general rule to say, even if you don't like the ordinance of man, for the most part, do it. For the most part, you don't have to love the law because you're actually submitting to the law unto the Lord and not to the law itself. And now employees, servants, those who are going out from Sunday morning to make an impact for God in the workplace, you don't have to love your boss to be loving. You don't have to agree with every decision your boss makes to be someone who's willing to work hard. He says that we are to do this with all fear. So one principle is that we do this as best we can unconditionally. Another principle is that we do this with honor and respect. You know, we're, we're, we don't look at that word fear, and it's good to separate because that is a word that could almost be like, okay, here comes the boss, and the beatings are going to continue until the morale improves, so we better do this, you know? It's a fear like we have for the fear of God. A fear that we have, we honor and fear, respect the position. And in doing so, here's the result. Here is the God-honoring, God-glorifying salt of the earth, light on a hill, separate and holy, different kind of people result. What God desires for his people to be are people that would represent him to the world. And we do that in the workplace 
by being the best workforce in the world. And we don't always get that right. And again, in the same way, we don't always get it right in the Sermon on Government was the point being that Christians are upstanding citizens and outstanding neighbors. Don't always get that right. But that is the call of God that should bring us to our knees and require us to call out for help. And it is so the same in the workplace. In a time where we've already got the headline possibilities of all of the ways you can be transient and move on and put your resume on LinkedIn and find a new job next week and curse your boss on the way out the door, Christians don't do that. If you follow Jesus, you get to work on time. If you follow Jesus, you are determined not to gossip about all the failures of your boss. If you follow Jesus, you are determined to be a kind and honorable person to the people that you work around. And if you follow Jesus by design, the whole point is that you begin to form a reputation to the outside world that they would love to have you on their team. They would actually love to have you in their household. They would love if there were more people who, for whatever reason, believe in this God that they don't understand, but the fruit of it is that you are a worker in the workplace, a servant under the master who serves unconditionally, does it with fear and respect. That's the point of what he is getting at. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief and suffering wrongly. This is, in its direct application, all about the reality that sometimes your life will be hard and you will be called to endure. And hidden in that message is a profound truth for our time that there is such a thing as suffering grief wrongly. This is a passage of scripture that should be held in our back pocket any time that you are sitting under the preaching of some feel-good message that says if you really give Jesus your all and you know increase your faith and trust him with everything, the future is going to be smooth. It's going to be a sea of glass now. And it's going to be health and wealth and whatever you name you get to claim. And mixed up in that message isn't just error. It's completely anti-gospel. It is the exact opposite of what we are actually being called to experience in this world. We're, we're being called to live in such a way where evil is spoken against you. To live in such a way where you are willing to suffer and endure to the glory of God. How does God get glory if your life never requires any endurance? But we go on because he now gives another principle. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? And so Peter's making a practical point. There are some times that you may suffer you may be 
corrected or harshly spoken to or in their time actually beaten because you weren't a good worker. You, you, you were in trouble for your own fault. I wish this was a verse that I believed in and understood more when I was first entering the workplace as a teenager because like many young people, I thought all of the problems in every job I ever had in my early days could be summed up in one person's fault, mainly my managers and bosses. <laughs> my, one of my first jobs was uh, I got to be a busser in the lodge, at the, the lower lodge at Bogus Basin. And when I say I got to be, it was really I got the free pass that came with it. That was such a nice feature. I don't know if they still do that, but if you're looking for a job and a free pass, Bogus Basin. And so as, you know, the first couple days you have to work before you get the pass, like stick around a little bit before we just start handing out passes. But as soon as I got that pass, they're like, here you go. I could snowboard anytime I want. Well, they were like, yeah, well, I mean, when your work's done, I was like, okay. So I did it as fast as I possibly could and went snowboarding. And of course, I'd get back and my manager, I remember to this day, her little old lady named Lois. What was she doing up in a bogus basin lodge? But she would get so mad at me just questioning all of my sloppy work, pointing out all of my sloppy errors, showing me all the things I didn't check off the list before I left. And my response was always, what a horrible woman that lady is. <laughs> and Peter's saying, listen, you're getting in trouble because you're a horrible worker. And enduring her condemnation, well, you don't get any credit for that. And, and this is a good lesson. Again, the, one of the ways that we can cling to a principle that Peter will say over and over again is that we don't respond in kind. When you're spoken evil against, don't speak evil. There, there will be no grace of God for you just getting into a war of words. When someone is harsh against you, don't become a bad worker and prove them right. There's no grace of God. There's no uh, uh, pleasing of God when you are suffering because you've turned into a bad worker. But, Peter says this, but when you do good and suffer, when you endure and take it patiently, this is commendable to God. At our core, we want to honor God with our lives. We don't always live in congruence with that desire but at our core, we would like our lives to hear in the end, well done, well done. I, I saw how you worked so hard and you were so mistreated and you endured knowing that you were serving me well done. And to do this, Peter says, patiently endure. You want to be someone who makes an impact with all of the ways that God has given you an opportunity to serve under authority, wherever the authority has gone haywire, keep going and endure unto the Lord. Now, this is a moment to pause and realize that whenever you're opening God's word, you're opening it to understand it, sometimes for future reference, you're also opening it so that people who need to hear it in real time can be ministered to, and it can be like medicine on their heart or medicine on their mind. So no doubt there are some of you who have come to church today and you're saying, I really needed to hear this. I am one of those percentage of Americans that are really questioning my position under the current authority structure that I'm in. It's really hard. And so before 
you just hear, keep going, hear that God wants to, wants you to know that his word will minister to you. He wants you to know what not to do as you consider all of these things. This is not a message to say, you know, cling to your current job no matter what. There's never an open door that God may send you to a new thing. It's not to say you can't pray for him to move you if it's his will. But it is to say, as you're questioning your position right now, and maybe you're getting home and you're just crying or just heavy-hearted, you go right to bed because you don't even know what to think about. Here's some things to avoid. Don't give in to responding in kind. Whatever you're going through with your current em employer or coworkers, let the word of God refresh or maybe give you vision for the first time in what his heart for your role is right now. It is not to lose your patience. It is not to lose your character to honor him. It is not to start gossiping or to start worrying or start being anxious. Your job right now is to trust that if you endure according to his plan, you continue to show kindness as he gives you grace. You continue to work your hardest as he gives you grace. He commends you for that. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You did not give up as you suffered for doing good. And verse 21 says this, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his footsteps. You know, so much of our study in 1 Peter, as we've put on the bulletin every week, is about having a perspective of living hope. That your job does not get to start or finish your hope that your position in the government and your neighborhood does not start and finish your hope, that you have a hope that is determined by the eternal providence and plan of God to bring you into heaven. That's why the whole first chapter, Peter was saying over and over again, your inheritance is in heaven, kept by God, incorruptible, undefiable. And it's this hope that is rooted not in good circumstances, but Christ overcoming the grave. Keep your perspective true. And here is now, as he zooms into practical application, he also zooms in with some perspective. And this is a perspective that Peter gives that can take us from just trying to survive something to actually changing the way we look at the whole thing so that we can thrive in it for God's glory. And here's, here it is, verse 21, this first simple statement, for this you were called. You were called? Some of you did not expect to hear that this job you've been praying, just, God, I just need something different. You did not expect one of the answers to say, God called you there. He placed you there. This is another way that we can, with confidence, take joy in the, the view of God when it comes to servants and slaves. Isn't it incredible that Peter, writing to encourage all the believers that get this message, he addresses the servants first. That, that, that was lost on me as I'm reading this until he gets to this moment where he says, you're called, servant. 
Peter did not address nobility, emperors, governors, people of high position and authority that may have some influence within the church to really do some evangelism. He did not even address the household masters. He addressed the people who were called to serve through suffering. He says, this is God's plan. Hey, there's a theme that we need to really cling to. God loves to work the margins. God chose his disciples, not out of the synagogue, but he went to the beaches and grabbed some fishermen. God loves to find people who are weak so he can make them strong and confound the whole world. And God's saying to servants right now, this is the plan of God to put you there. Now that's an encouragement for all of us in whatever vocation you are. I don't care if you walk into a fast food restaurant tomorrow, if you walk into the corner office in the high rise of downtown Boise, God has a way to call people into a specific field for his purposes. And here's the joy in knowing that you were called. You wanna know the secret of perspective shift that this offers? When you really believe that God has placed you somewhere to make an impact for his name, you fall in love with wherever he places you. And here, here's who I was thinking of as I read, man, a call to work? You ever hung out with a returned missionary who gets back from a foreign field? Here's one thing they all have in common. I'm looking over here because I see the Krager family. And I, I love hanging out with Kirk because he's a return missionary. He spent over a decade in England. If you ever hang out with Kirk, you're going to hear a lot about England. He loves England. He speaks English now. It's amazing. <laughs> and I mean like the idioms, you know. He loves Man City and watches Premier League. He tries to tell me about rugby and little ways that they, he just fell in love with their culture. And it's interesting when a missionary accepts a call to go to a foreign land, God always includes a love for the land. And then the missionary is willing to suffer for it. And that is true of all of our return missionaries. Brent loves Italy. Nagme loves the underground church in Iran. Dottie loves what she gets to do in India. Every person that goes by a call of God to reach a certain people cannot help but suffer on their behalf because they know they're called. And then we look at our workplace and we're like, well, I guess I'm going to work to raise money for missions and just give it away. Or maybe someday I can squirrel away enough to go on my own mission. And the answer is you're on mission. If you shifted your perspective away from just buying time in the cubicle to the day where you can finally get to work and started realizing that Peter's talking to you, servants with authority over you, and you were called, you'd have the same love. You'd be like, you know what? I love this fast food restaurant. Everybody in there, they're crazy. They come in there in the middle of the night and they need Jesus and God's got me right there, I'm ready. Could you imagine? You'd love the bank. You'd love the car wash. You'd love wherever God placed you if you truly believed you were called. He says, you're called because Christ also suffered for us. Peter will now give an example of what all of this looks like to perfection. So grateful that Peter doesn't have to use his own life, which he could have given so many examples of his own suffering heart for people he was called to. He doesn't have to try to find the, the best Christian among them who is really crushing it in their service unto the Lord. 
He says, all of this, in whatever you, way you experience it, and by God's grace, you live it out, and you make an impact for your calling through suffering to the glory of God, is the gospel. Every ounce of your calling to suffer for the glory of God is rooted in the perfection of the mission completed in Christ. And he says that you should follow in his footsteps. You know, I love this. There's this uh, linguistic movement happening right now in the church age we live in. Less people are saying Christian. Did you know that? I, even the other day, I, I said to one of my kids, stop doing that. That's not Christian of you. And my wife's like, don't say that. It sounds so harsh. I was like, well, actually, they weren't being Christian. And, but it's a byword, you know? It's like a byword that our culture uses. It's Christianese, and it's Christian culture, and it's Christian movies and music. So now people, to be more true to what is actually happening when you meet Christ, many people are saying, I'm a Jesus follower. They say, I want to follow Christ with my life. And you may not call yourself a Christian, but you, you, you may be more inclined to say, I'm a follower of Christ. And I think that's a fine linguistic movement towards that because I think it's more true to what is supposed to happen. But know that if you say that, know if you're claiming that, know what you're signing up for. Do you know what you mean when you say follow Christ? Do you, do you think you're following him to the beach to start calling people to follow after you? Like he did with Peter and the initial disciples? Do you think you're following him to the ascension to go right into heaven? You're following him into the pattern of life that he perfected in suffering. This is what it says. Look, it. we'll just read it all together. And as you read this, we're going to end with communion. This is your communion passage this morning. This is when the, the, the word says, you better take communion in, in, in a manner that's worthy. This picture of what Christ did for us, and we remember every time we gather, this is the heart condition of taking communion in a worthy manner. Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. First Peter chapter 2, perfected. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. He did not speak evil against those evil speakers of his life. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously in all things, serving unto the Father in heaven, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. And here's the power of the gospel. When you follow Christ into suffering, you can, I can promise you, in the footsteps of Christ, there is no wasted suffering. By whose stripes you were healed. It says that, that Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. The joy set before him was that his stripes would set you free that his suffering would not go to waste, that the greatest tragedy that the world has ever known, that he who knew no sin lived a perfect life, would suffer on our behalf and become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. 
God does not waste the suffering of his servant. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The power and the promise that we are called for a time to submit to an earthly government and to submit to an earthly overseer, but to know this, we do it unto God. And our actual overseer, the actual shepherd of our soul is Jesus. And so you maybe have someone in your mind as you listen to this whole sermon, they're your boss or they're your manager and they, have, they can shepherd your Monday through Friday time. And they can shepherd to their best of their ability and sometimes harshly they can shepherd your income. Sometimes they have to shepherd your, your hurts and your pains and your emotions for a time in the context of work. But the promise is this, Lift up your perspective and know the God that we worship today is shepherding the soul, the core of your being belongs to him. And in doing that, we can, as we already sang, lift up our hands and say, God, you have my whole life. You have my life as I live in the citizenship of the country. You have placed me. You have my life as you have called me a servant under the authority of masters, some good, some evil. My life belongs to you. Only you are the shepherd of my soul. That is the living hope that all of you now, like a commencement speech into college, you now go. You endure patiently in the challenges, the difficulties, the tense relationships, the harsh people. You now go, not alone, but with the shepherd of your soul. So that in doing good work in the workplace, a non-believer may see your life and glorify God on the day of visitation. Amen.